Welcome to the Leaders of Interest podcast with your host, Jonathan J.J. Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, J.J. So, Nan, thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. Hey, as you know, I always like to have the guest tell us a little bit about themselves, and if you would, give us your bio. Well, I am living in the northwestern part of Montana, and I say that first because I made a huge change after spending 20-plus years in the corporate world, including as a vice president with multi-billion dollar QVC. I had always wanted to live and work in Montana because I was born here, and I always wanted to be a writer. And so... I decided I wanted to do all that before I was 50, and that's what I'm doing. So we moved to Montana, and now I write business and career books. I consult. I speak around the country, and it's an awesome balance between the two things. (laughs) Good. Hey, before we get started, I always like to ask our guests some would-you-rather questions. They're fairly simple, but we like to ask them so that we can learn a little bit about Are you ready? Okay. All right. Okay. Would you rather give up your computer or your pet? Oh, my pet. I have no pet, so that's easy. Okay, then let's restate the question. <laughs> Would you rather give up your computer or your husband? Uh, well, my computer. <laughs> Would you rather be invincible or invisible? I would really rather be neither, but if I had to be one or the other, probably invincible. Yeah. All right, so this one's not a would you rather questions, but what I want to know is what was the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to you? There's a lot of those that have happened, and I think what I would probably say is as an introvert growing up, so many things were embarrassing. Being called on in school was embarrassing, but I would say in a corporate world, introducing the wrong person to my boss with the wrong name in a board meeting. Oh, no, that's not good. (laughs) Not good, no. (laughs) So how did you overcome it? Well, you know, you laugh a lot and and you make fun of yourself and the person was extraordinarily gracious and it all works out. (laughs) So tell us about the premise of our talk today and that is your book, The Titleless Leader. Most leaders like to have a title, but you're saying more of a concept of a title of a leader not having a title. Well, there's a couple of premises behind that concept. The first is the fact that, you know, the world has changed. And because the world has changed, the expectations about everybody needs to get results and lead people and make things happen is something that an enormous number of people, no matter your role, face. But the other premise behind the book is the fact that real leadership always comes without a title because that's the kind of inner to outer perspective that allows people to actually have natural followership and get results the right way in the way in which people want to work with them, align with them, collaborate with them, and and get great results. In reading your book, I kind of thought of a couple questions. Why do you think title and authority no longer have the same relevancy for getting results as it did in the past? Well, you know, there's been these big shifts, and I think most of us can kind of name them, but let me just label them for us. And, And one of them is the fact that, you know, the Great Recession changed a lot of things, but what it did significantly is it broke the social contract between employees and employers. And people no longer look to their leaders in the same way because with that came this era of distrust. We have never had the kinds of ratings in organizations or in government. Uh, We are at historic lows in terms of 
trust, and yet trustworthiness is the number one characteristic that people want in the people they work with and for. And then you layer the third thing which happened, which you have all this technology and all this easy access to information and the way that people do work in different ways, and that has changed the game, ultimately, and the way in which people who are successful need to operate. Yeah, it certainly has. I agree with that. So then of all the different styles or types of leader, why is it necessary that we have a titleist leader? Well, you know, I think it, it boils down to, you know, the concept that we're faced with all the time. Like, you can't tell the difference between a real photograph and one that's kind of created by computer wizardry. You can't trust that something that's a message that comes from a leader or an organization isn't been or isn't something that's there to influence or manipulate you. And people are trying to go with what's real, what's authentic, who do I follow, how do I know? And that's what Titleist Leadership is about. It's about uncommon behaviors that create natural followership, enables people to trust that this is someone that I want to work with, this is someone who has my best interests at heart. And and it is really what gets results today because people are very skeptical, they're very angry, they're not looking at leaders in the same way they used to. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I guess the question is, in every business, you certainly can't have everybody have a title or everybody labeled as the leader. So why is it so important that you know how to lead people without a title? I think a couple things have happened. You know, people, no matter what job they have, based on budget cuts, based on technology, based on all the changes that work, they're being asked to leave virtual teams. They're being asked to lead and get results from people that don't report to them. They're asked to to deal with the multi-generational issues. No matter what their role is, they're asked to get results. And the only way that people can do that in this kind of complex, fluid environments that we have now is by creating this kind of choice of leadership. We can all choose to be a leader. And I think that's part of what is still in the mindset of a lot of people is that leadership was something that came with a title and that leadership was something that you got when you achieved results. And what we now know is that's not true at all. People follow people for very distinct reasons. And you choose if you, you know, if you want to get results by being a leader. And when I talk about leadership in this way, it's a mindset. It's a philosophy. It's a way of operating. And, you know, it's not about titles. And it's not to say that people with titles don't use this kind of leadership. They certainly do. Yeah, I remember a part of your book where you kind of talked about inner work and outer work is kind of the book theme. And I'm guessing that the inner work is more along the lines of almost an emotional intelligence level about a person. And what kind of inner work do people need in order to be a titleist leader? One of the things that we know is exactly what you said, is the kinds of things that manifest on the outside, the way in which we operate and how we do what we do. It is a reflection of who we are on the inside. And so things like our belief and our expectations about people, things like our ability to think independently, to react to change, to transition from change, to know how to deal with that. Those are all inner work kinds of things, and they allow us then to have those behaviors on the outside that get results. And central to all that is sort of four cornerstones that go even deeper than that, which are about tireless leadership. And it it has to do with things I call self-soul courage, winning philosophies, and possibility seeds. And those kind of drive those other inner work kinds of uh, perspectives. Yeah, 
I would agree. Um, tell me, you know, politics in the workplace, because this is huge <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> They're certainly not dependable or trustworthy, of course. What is your term or what is your definition of dependable politics from your book? One of the things that I think people misunderstand about politics, we all, when we hear the word, we all think this dark side politics that you can't have worked in an organization for any length of time and not experience what that means and the fear of that. But what Titleist leaders understand is actually politics are really just a way of getting something done. And you have a choice about how you operate. And that's what I call dependable politics, meaning that it's best of self kinds of orientation. Dependable politics recognizes that your intention, if you have a well-meaning intention, it changes the way in which you approach things and it changes sort of the law of reciprocity. You get what you give. And how you do that with sort of these well-intentioned behaviors, your integrity and ethics, and the way in which you choose to show up in the deepest sense of the word, lets people know whether you are dependable, you're trustworthy, you're someone that they want to follow. And you can get just as great a results, actually better, applying that kind of approach than you can any other way. And a simple way of thinking about it is sort of being a musketeer, you know, all for one, one for all. When people know that you want to help them succeed, it's really hard for them to not see politics as something they want to join with you on because that whole powerful thought about we can all be winning is a pretty significant one. So it's really a mindset. Yeah, I agree. All right, I want you to help me understand something because in our organization, we have about 10,000 employees. So we got multi-generational happen. We got cultural differences and we got geographical differences in the workplace. So how do the concepts in Titleist Leader help people kind of navigate through these challenges? Well, one of the things that the Titleist leaders do is they don't apply any of those kinds of labels to people. So they're not looking at somebody by a generational issue. They're looking at them by a, a concept of making it personal. So, you know, if you happen to like to get voicemail and I happen to like text messaging, well, that's my personal preference. So a Titleist leader is going to choose to communicate with you the way in which you like to be communicated to and not say that it has anything to do with this element of generational issues. It has to do with personal choice. And when we recognize and honor that, and we remember kind of the simple things of not having these stereotypes about, you know, because you're remote or because it's it's a cross-functional team, you know, it's going to be harder to have collaboration. Those kinds of mindsets, those kinds of approaches are the way in which a Titleist leader trains themselves to see people as individuals. And when you do, it changes the way that you act toward people and it changes their reaction to you. There's some cornerstone behaviors or some traits that you mention in the book. You care to talk about those? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, let's do it. <laughs> tell, okay. tell me, you know, if you consider the cornerstones of a Titleist leader. Why are those important? Well, one of the things that people will talk about pretty frequently is, hey, I'm doing all these things that you say I'm doing. You know, when I do workshops or I'm out speaking to people, you hear people say, you know, I'm doing all these things. You tell me I need to build trust. I need to look at people as individuals. I need to have dependable politics, but it's not working for me. And so part of that has to do with you need to go back to the original grounding, your own personal grounding. And that comes into these four cornerstones. One of them is self-alignment. Now, self-alignment is this concept of things have changed in the workplace and it is no longer enough to walk the talk. It's totally meaningless for people. They don't want people to walk the talk. They want people to be 
who they say they are. Another word for that is behavioral integrity. Are your words and your actions in alignment? If they are and you're self-aligned, that's a cornerstone. The second one is about seeing and helping other people's talents and nurturing others' strengths and abilities. I call it possibility seeds. It's helping other people thrive. It's recognizing that, you know, you can invite somebody onto your committee and help them do something and be seen in a different way because they have talents in that that way. And you don't do it because there's some kind of corporate coaching philosophy out there. You do it because it's the right thing to do. You want to help everybody thrive because it helps all of us. That's a cornerstone. The third one is something called soul courage. You know, we all hear these people who talk about what they're against at work, like all the things that are bad and all the things that they're against and they don't want these things to happen. Titleist leaders are people who talk about things they're for. They're willing to stand for better politics at work, for trust and organizational communication. They're willing to work for those things and they talk about what they're for and people align with that because they're willing to kind of have skin in the game. And finally, the last cornerstone is something I call winning philosophies. And that's really looking at sort of this broader perspective and operating with an understanding that truly when we're only, when we're all winning, we all win. Meaning that, you know, the winner takes all mentality is kind of a last century approach. And if you want natural followership, then it's about winning. It's about helping everyone create their own sense of contribution and being able to show up and do good work. Yeah, I agree. Something I remember in your book was about being the message, not the messenger. It really resonated with me because sometimes in my office, people just come in and go, Bleh! they just gurgitate everything out on the table and that's it, you know? <laughs> so, and you're supposed to fix it, yep. Right, exactly. Tell us a little bit about that, about being the message, not the messenger. Well, yeah, I think the best way to describe it, I'm a real advocate out there when I'm working with my clients or I'm out doing workshops and, and speaking, is telling people to look around their organizations and take down any of those plaques that say, we think that employees are most important asset. Most organizations that have those messages, Unless they're in the top 1% of organizations in this country, it is a failed promise. And that's what being the message, not the messenger, is all about. It's not about the plaques per se, but it's about the alignment that what we say to be true as people is. And we model what we believe. So maybe our aspiration is we want our employees to be our most important asset. But if they're not, then the cynicism that comes from that is true. If I promise you that you're going to get an increase in a review next week, but I don't make good on that promise, then I'm not being the message. I basically am just going along with what is normal operating procedure. And it takes a lot of courage and it takes a titleist leader, someone with uncommon behaviors, to really be the model for what they talk about. And that's what people are looking for. Yeah, that's huge because every one of us can relate to being told that somebody was going to do something for or with us and they don't follow through. So we know how that feels. Yeah, and it's not so great. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Tell us about your chapter, Painting Pictures. Well, one of the things that Titleist leaders do is they help make it easier for someone else to do something for them and to be successful. And they do that by painting word pictures. And we think we all do that at times, but Titleist leaders do it differently. They make it so people can see what it looks like to 
actually be successful. They're not telling them all the hows, but they're telling them the vision of what needs to happen. And and not vision on the big way, but vision on like an everyday like task way. And there's three components to that. You need to help people be able to see it. They need to be able to do it. And you need to be able to be purposeful. And so when you learn how to paint those pictures, people can show up and do incredible work because you're helping them see what it looks like to be successful around here or what it looks like to get this work done in a great way. You know, everybody wants to everybody wants to show up and do great work and and feel like they did something at work. So, when you paint pictures and you help people see what success is about, people just line up to want to follow people like that because how can you go wrong when everybody is feeling like, "Wow, I can do this. I can do this because someone told me what it really looks like." Yeah. I agree. I know that in the workplace, more often than not, people shy away from conflict. And sometimes as a leader, you have to care enough to confront or you have to care enough to confront with conflict. Talk a little bit about what you coin as healthy conflict. Well, I, I agree with you. There's this sense that conflict is, is something we shouldn't have and, and people, you know, tiptoe around it. But what a titleist leader knows is actually conflict is really diagnostic. It's not good or bad. It merely tells us that we have a difference. What's good or bad are the behaviors sometimes that we do around our conflict. But if you use it merely as an understanding, as a way to diagnose and say, wow, you're looking at something differently than I am. And with the understanding that we have this natural tendency, all of us, to think that people are like us. But if we really step back, we know they're not. You know, everybody comes with different needs, different backgrounds, different experiences, different wants. And all conflict does is tell you that you have a difference. And so when you use that to be diagnostic, you are then able to start to work toward greater understanding, using those ideas together and make the conflict something that people see as a workable tool to get to a better result. All right. So tell me, how does the 90% rule uh, work as it relates to conflict? Well, (laughs) this concept of the 90% rule is that, you know, we have a choice how we see each other. And there are entire organizations, let alone leaders and, and management folks, who manage to the 10% of people. I tend to think it's more like the 5 or 3% of people, but people who, you know, are not doing the best job. Their policies are around that. Their approaches are around it. They will not want to approach people because they know they think they're going to blow up or have difficulty or concept. And unfortunately, what happens is that while 90% of people do a great job and show up and want to contribute to the world, we oftentimes see everybody through the eyes of the 10% or the 5% or however you want to define that percentage. And we approach our own mindset and our policies and regulations around that. And therefore, the way in which we need to shift our filters, because we all know that research and, and what we've learned is over time is that the bad stuff is stickier than the good stuff. We remember that. We remember the stuff from that 5 or 10% and we think it's much bigger. We need to change our filters on how we think about things. And when we do that, we can then approach conflict or difficulty or any of those kinds of employee relations kinds of issues with a different sense of being and see the 90 or 95% first. And that changes the way we deal with conflict and everything else. Awesome. I think you gave us some 
very good content. Very good content. Who's doing something right now that you think is important? One of the people that I would really want to highlight for that, and I want to just do this quickly on two levels. One is a professor out of Stanford University, uh, Carol Dweck, who does all this research on mindset, fixed mindset and growth mindset. Her book, Mindset, the New Psychology of uh, Success, is probably one of the most powerful books and most important books for everyone from parents to any kind of employee or leader or manager about the way in which we can change how we think about things. And so I would definitely do a shout out for that. But I also want to do a shout out for people who are creating these pockets of excellence at a time in organizations when the culture is not conducive necessarily to organizational change that will benefit them, but they are leading as titleless leaders. They are leading with trust. They are creating these wonderful places where people do great work and they're doing it with courage and they're doing it because they're showing up and and really bringing the best of who they are to work. And those people deserve to be recognized, reinforced and encouraged because that's what changes our workplace, our individuals like that. That's a good point because all of us that are in leadership probably wouldn't do as good of a job if we didn't have the other people that are supporting us that work on our teams. Mm-hmm. And it's really they are the foundation that makes a successful leader most times. Yeah, you know, some absolutely. People, some, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree with you. You know, I think that all of it together, those those kind of pockets um, and the way in which we interact with everybody that we associate with, it is what helps us be better people and create this kind of camaraderie and respect that, that builds over time. Certainly. Well, how the heck can we find you, Nan? I'm very easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to do is go to nanrussell.com and you'll find out. Um, this is uh, my third book. My fourth book just came out of about a month ago, which is all about trust and creating cultures of engagement, passion, and innovation. And you'll find the kind of things I do in terms of speaking and workshops and newsletters and anything like that. So just go to nanrussell.com. Great. I mean, we've certainly spent some good quality time together today, and I certainly appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I um, I always think that one of the things that really is helpful is the kind of work that you're doing where you're bringing ideas to people in quick ways where they can say, hey, you know, if there's one seat or one idea that uh, someone can take away from any of your podcasts and it helps to make it a little bit easier at work, that's a great contribution. So thank you for, for doing this. Oh, that was so nice of you to say. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be sure to look us up online at leadersofinterest.com. Become a mentor of mentors by rating us in iTunes and Stitcher. Your five-star rating helps us invest in leaders just like you. See you next time.